want to talk to you this morning, and this is the introductory lesson as we continue a biblical survey, an introductory lesson to the book of Revelation. And so if we look at the book of Revelation, we're automatically looking at something that is quite unlike anything else we deal with in the New Testament. The book of Revelation is when I remember when our son came home, our son, uh, who's now 31, did his elementary school years and middle school years at Cypress Community Christian School. And he came home one day and he said, Dad, our teacher today explained Revelation. And I said, really? And he says, yes. And he unloaded and unpacked for me this thing, which was explaining how uh, uh, events had taken place and, and were taking place and, and all. And it was an understanding of the book of Revelation that I, his father, uh, did not share. And so I'm sitting there. He was so excited about it and so interested in it. And so I'm sitting there having that parental agony of, do I say, well, son, I think that's uh, wrong. Or do I sit there and just let him go on with it and say, well, that's neat. Or do I, I, I mean, I'm sitting there and it's not really something in the textbooks on how do you parent. And so I looked at him and I said, Will, the book of Revelation is really cool because it's, it's, it's unusual, it's complicated, and to some it's kind of like a puzzle. And I said, different people put it together differently and have a different understanding. And the understanding that you were taught today is one that some good people who love the Lord and love his word believe. That's why they teach it. I said, there are some other viewpoints that are different. And, and, and so if what you've been taught doesn't wind up quite being what takes place, then you need to not base your faith on that interpretation, if that makes sense. And it didn't. But I explained to him, I just see it differently and tried to give him some understanding. And that is the way it is with the book of Revelation. There are different perspectives and there are different approaches. And so uh, I come to you this morning uh, with some measure of humility uh, because I'm going to tell you my understandings as we walk through some of this, but I'm also going to tell you that you always need to be very careful as people are talking about a book like this, because to some degree, we're trying to understand a puzzle. Now, I like puzzles, and I've, I've had people, uh, uh, Mike has given me multiple puzzles that he's built out of wood, and he, he would bring them to me, and he would say, here, I made this for you. And you have to get this ring from off of here or over there. And I would sit there and I'd look at it. And he'd say, you want me to tell you how to do it? When it was obvious after 10 minutes, I couldn't figure it out. I said, heavens no. I'm going to figure this out. Now, he last gave me one of these four years ago. And about a year later, he said, hey, did you ever figure that out? And I said, no. And he said, do you want me to tell you? I said, no. 
I'm still working on it, Mike, four years later, but I will figure that thing out without having to Google it. Janet Seifert gave me one one time, and, and she's just so smart and, and know-it-all on this stuff that she asked me about it, so I Googled hers, figured out how to do it, and I emailed her and told her exactly how to do it and took pictures and all. She was very impressed because she thought I had enough integrity not to Google it, and she did not know that I cheated. But I love puzzles, and I love to understand them. So I've always been drawn to the book of Revelation. Uh, I'm your Bible nerd, remember? I wrote a 75-page paper on the book of Revelation when I was 19 years old. So I, I, it's been an area that I've enjoyed studying for a long time. Because it's got lots of different words and ideas and emphasis and, and pictures and images. I'm reminded of... One gentleman that, Tim, am I allowed to use your name? I'm reminded of one gentleman who shall remain nameless. Who had reached a point in his life where he said, Mark, I want to know, I got to figure out some of this stuff about faith. His mother had been a devout woman, uh, uh, but Tim had lived a life. Uh, where he was involved in so many different things. He'd been a police officer. He'd been a private investigator. He'd been all these different things. Had seen a lot of things in the world that were really rough. And and Tim had reached a point where he said, I need to understand who Jesus is and what faith is about. And so he start, I, he said, where should I start in the Bible? I said, read the Gospel of John. And he read John. And he read John. And I think he read John every day for about a, a month. And then he said uh, 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 to himself... I'm going to read a different gospel because I've read that every day. And so he read the gospel of Matthew. He called me up. He said, I've read Matthew. And I said, yeah. He says, yeah, this scares me to death. I think I'm going to hell. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, before I couldn't uh, uh, kill my brother. Now I'm not supposed to hate him. And he says, this is really bad news for me. What should I do? And I was running late to a meeting and I didn't have time to talk. I said, quit reading Matthew. Go back and read John again. And I'll talk to you this weekend. He called me the next day. He says, you didn't call me back. And I said, I'm sorry. He said, well, I I got tired of reading John, so I read the revelation of John. And I said, yeah. He said, well, yesterday I was afraid I was going to hell. Today I'm afraid to leave the house. (laughs) About 10 years ago, Tim just loves Jesus and has such an exciting story to tell about how he came to Jesus and how Jesus came to him. If you ever get a chance, talk to Tim about that story. But I'll just always remember that. Man, I've read Revelation. Yeah, how you doing? I'm afraid to leave the house. So here's what I did. I got on Google Images and I I did a, a, a Revelation. And I pulled up some pictures to show you some pictures of what people think about this book. There's a picture of one fellow's view of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and that looks pretty frightening. But if you read Revelation, it's about that frightening. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, not a pretty story. How about this one? This is one where they were convinced that the Antichrist was a combination of the Ayatollah Khomeini and the fellow who's the past president of Iran. And so they put together this montage as the four horsemen of the apocalypse are coming out through 
the World Trade Center bombings and all of this kind of stuff. And that's the way they understood the book of Revelation and what they were teaching. Or here's another one. This is just a comic book version of, of uh, uh, the tyranny that's coming at the end of days. Here's another one. This is the one where the end of the world, or the, 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 not the end of the world, but the rapture was coming on June 26, 2015. And it's coming because of these different problems and, and uh, the, the Pope was involved and the, 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 all, you know, the, the, the movement on gay and lesbian rights was involved and all of this kind of stuff. And so they had it all figured out. Here's another one that had it figured out. Now in this one, America's actually the beast. And so it's you and me who's the beast. We typically hear people from America talking about it. and They don't portray us as the beast. But in other parts of the world, we're the beast. We're the bad guy. Um, uh, uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, lots of people had President Obama listed as the Antichrist. And, and not so much now that he's nearing the end of his term, but especially during the election uh, before he got elected the first time around. Uh, there are lots of other people who've been associated with it. And there are so many different views and so many different perspectives. I remember seeing a noted guy, it was Hal Lindsey, who uh, when Russia, the, the USSR dissolved and Gorbachev was in charge and the wall came down in, in uh, Germany and then Gorbachev got deposed and Hal Lindsey got on TV by the best of my memory and he said, and this, what, 20 years ago or so, 25 years ago, he got on TV and he said, okay, this is it. The USSR is coming back together. We're now in the final days. Armageddon's coming down. Gorbachev was dethroned. That's because the USSR is going to da-da-da-da-da. And he laid out this exacting prophecy that uh, did not happen. Um, and so you read or you watch and you hear all of this. And some of it comes and goes, and some of it lingers, and then some of it, you, you sit and you try to figure it out, and a lot of people respond with this. Why should we even study Revelation? We're not going to understand it anyway. So we ought to just leave it alone. We got plenty of food in the letters of Paul. Let's get back to the gospel stories. Let's do the series Pastor David started on Old Testament stories. And let's get back to the stuff like that. Why study Revelation? I've got an answer for you. Revelation 1, verse 3. By the way, since this is an overview class, if you want to know more about Revelation than 90% of the world... Let me tell you this. It's singular. Don't call it revelations, uh, plural. There is no S at the end. It is a single revelation. That puts you ahead of 90% of the world. People who talk about revelations say, hey, come to class with me. We're going to straighten a couple of things out. But look at Revelation 1, verse 3. Blessed 
is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it. For the time is near. Well, I want to tell you the time is still near. The prophecy is still there. And the blessing still applies. Why study Revelation? Because in studying it, as we read it, we're blessed. As we hear it, we're blessed. As it informs our actions, we're blessed. So it's an exciting and a worthwhile task. And so we study Revelation with an eagerness to understanding it. Now, I will tell you for almost anything we read biblically, and I would say for anything we read biblically, but the lawyer in me just doesn't like to talk in total absolutes if I can avoid it. So for anything we read biblically that I'm thinking of right now, what we need to start out with is context. So the context for Revelation includes who wrote it. I've put a picture on the PowerPoint. If you've ever been to the island of Patmos, P-A-T-M-O-S, the island of Patmos is hard to get to, but it's a real gas to go. There's a cave and a monastery where tradition has it John received the revelation. We don't know if he did or not at that location, but the tradition is older than our ability to verify or not verify. And so it's a neat place because if you're standing on it, you can see the harbor. And and the, the island of Patmos is really built around two mountains that are joined together by a little split of land. And so it's got a harbor on the east and a harbor on the west. And it just so happens that one of the harbors is, from the mountain view, looks like the Greek letter Alpha, and one looks like the Greek letter Omega. And so John writes, uh, Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. If you're looking from the island, he's the east and the west, the beginning and the end, both sides. But if we go back briefly to the Elmo we'll see in a number of places John identifies himself as John. And when he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come, says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Send it to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. Send it to Laodicea. And so John did. Now who is this John? There are lots of people who can offer lots of different explanations. 
I will tell you my suggestion is the one that most people seem to land on. It's certainly the consensus opinion of the early church. And that is that John is the Apostle John. The Apostle John left, according to church history, Jerusalem as part of the pending fight against Rome, 68 to 70, the Jewish rebellion, and went and settled in Ephesus and taught and was a, a, a significant church leader in Ephesus for some time. He was imprisoned on Patmos or, or isolated on Patmos as part of a persecution because of his faith. And so from that uh, uh, island, if we could go back to the PowerPoint, please, from Patmos, he writes Revelation. Now, Patmos, if we put up a map, Patmos is an island that's just offshore modern Turkey. If you're standing on Patmos, you can see Turkey. Uh, the, the, it's not so far you can't see it. In fact, if we put the churches up that he wrote to, the seven churches... They were all churches, and he names them in the order in which someone would take the letters. So the first church you'd hit is the port city of Ephesus. At the time of port city, no longer. But at the time of port city, it's been silted up, the, the river has. Um, but you hit Ephesus. And each of those churches are in the direction you would go if you were taking a letter uh, and you were following the major highway of the day. And so... The, the churches themselves, from Patmos Island, you can see Ephesus. You can see the coastal area that would be Ephesus. That's the first receiving church, Ephesus. Now, just 30 years or so after receiving that letter, the Revelation, there was a church leader from Ephesus named Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr wrote a number of writings we still have today. In one of the writings, Justin Martyr is referencing Revelation chapter 20. In his reference, Justin Martyr said, A certain man with us, whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ, who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him. And he goes on to talk about the passage in Revelation 20. That's one of many early church references and to me, one of the most reliable ones, because that's from a fellow who lives in the main city that would have gotten the book, the letters, just 30 years earlier. He would certainly have a good idea. Now, when we read Revelation, that beginning part makes sense. But if we start reading some of the other parts, if we could go back to the Elmo, you've beaten me to it. And I'm going to randomly just flip open and just put something on the screen. And this was totally at random. If you doubt it, I'll close my eyes and just flip a couple of pages. We'll do it again. Here we go. I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he says, Fear God, give him glory, because, of the, hour, because the hour of his judgment has come, Worship him who made heaven and earth. And then another angel. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Another angel. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he'll drink the wine of God's wrath. 
if you go up above. I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and 144,000 who had his name. On, and his father's name was written on their foreheads. And there's a voice like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. Then the sound of harpists playing on their harps, singing a new song, and four creatures before the elders. And no one could learn that song but the 144 who hadn't defiled themselves with women. Now, you read this, and you have symbolism that's clearly coming off every page. If we go back to the PowerPoint, I pulled up a picture of some of the symbolism of Revelation 12. And, and there are different beasts and different images and different things. And what is it with all of this symbolism? What does it mean? How do we do it? How do we understand it? Let me suggest to you that Revelation is a kind of literature. It comes from a Greek word, apocalypsis, apocalypsis, excuse me, apocalypsis, emphasis is on the ah there, apocalypsis, which in, if we translate it, it means an unveiling, a disclosing, a removing of a cover. And so there is an entire kind of literature that arose in Jewish writings that are called apocalyptic literature by scholars today. The earliest we've got is Daniel, probably. The last half of the Old Testament book of Daniel. But following in the footsteps of Daniel, there is an entire group of writings. It was very popular writings. How many of you have read Lord of the Rings? Or seen the movie? Or The Hobbit? Okay. If 2,000 years from now, someone were to stumble across the Lord of the Rings, they might think, what a peculiar time we lived in. Middle Earth, Hobbitses. There's some marvelous things in there. Second breakfast. I love that. That's for many of you, that's what those donuts were. Kelly told Bob when he got one this morning, she said, Bob, I cooked you eggs this morning. Bob looked at Kelly and said, haven't you heard of second breakfast? It's in the Hobbit. Now, here's the deal. There's a whole genre of literature that we call fantasy writing. The Chronicles of Narnia. The Dorini Chronicles, the Shannara books, uh, I, I, uh, the Lord of the Rings. There's there's a wealth of material out there if you're really bored that you can read called fantasy genre literature, and they have little themes in common, and they'll frequently have some of the same little beasties. They'll have elves. The elves always have pointed ears. They'll have, um, some of them will have trolls and gremlins. 
Some of them will have nasty things riding on horses. And, and, and these images, if you try to read one without understanding that there's a whole sorted group of this literature that is just a style of writing, then you're not going to get all that you need to get from it. Revelation reads so odd to us because we're not first century Jews. But the Jews, not the Greeks, not the Romans, but the Jews are the ones who had this writing style, this genre of literature called apocalyptic literature. I brought with me two volumes of the Dead Sea Scrolls that have been translated. These are the non-biblical Dead Sea Scrolls. In other words, we have Dead Sea Scrolls that are Bible texts. These are the ones that are not Bible texts, but are still in the Bible community there. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls give us example after example after example of apocalyptic writings. It was a huge kind of writing that they were all over back in the day. And it helps us to understand some of what was going on. I've, I've pulled up some of this. Here is an index in the back of volume two. And it tells you some of the different writings. So it tells you about the apocalypse of, Lam of Lamech, the apocalypse of the Messiah, the apocalypse of weeks. They've got so many apocalyptic writings that are there. This 4Q means it was found in the fourth cave at Qumran. That's 6Q, the sixth cave. And then they've got numbers. This is the um, apocalypse of Lamech is 1Q20. That's Transcript or fragment 20 from the first cave, from cave one at Qumran. And you can read these. And one of the things you find out when you start reading all of the other literature that was in this same types are things that help you understand issues in the Bible. For example, let me give you from one of the apocalyptic writings 4Q246. Isn't that just a best-selling title? 4Q246. See, these folks were expecting the Messiah. All of, uh, not all of, uh, uh, a lot of Israel knew God had promised the Messiah. And they were looking for the Messiah when Jesus came. The time was right. The signs were there. And so a lot of people would write apocalyptic writings about the Messiah, the coming King. Here's one. He will be called the Son of God. Now this writing, the scholars date somewhere between 50 B.C. and 1 A.D. So this is in the 50 years preceding the birth of Christ. He will be called Son of God. And they will call Him Son of the Most High. Now, doesn't that make a passage like Luke 1.32, all of a sudden, even more important. Because Luke 1.32 is, is, is a statement that goes to people 
who've been reading this material or had it read to them. The birth of Jesus is foretold by the angel Gabriel in Luke 142. 132, excuse me. Look what the angel Gabriel says. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. That is a direct messianic reference to Jesus. He, that is a reference to Jesus being the Son of God. The Son of the Most High in the literature of the day, if we understand it. So the symbolism you find complete in here. One of the things you'll notice when you read uh, the Revelation, for example, is you'll find the description of the, the, the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem comes down, and it's in Revelation 21. Revelation 21, He showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. At the 12 gates, 12 angels. On the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the summon of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three. On the north, three. On the south, three. On the west, three. And the city wall had 12 foundations with the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, look at this and get this. Get this in your brain because I'm going to have to take it off the screen to show you the next thing. Twelve, there's a great high wall in the New Jerusalem with twelve gates. Each of the gates has the tribes of the sons of Israel. You got it? There's a whole set of writings that deal with the New Jerusalem. A whole set of Dead Sea Scrolls. That, that we found that tell us in that genre of literature there were lots of, of, of things. And the interesting part is, is they always measure the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem gets measured. So here, for example, from the fourth cave is fragment number 554. 554. This is the New Jerusalem. And they're all coming down and it talks about the south and the east and the north and those ellipses and the brackets, that's because uh, that's part of this manuscript that's missing. And so they're, they're having to let you know that part of it's missing. These are fragments they've put together. And they've got the door of Simeon and up to this central door, 35 stadia. Then there's the door called the door of Levi, etc., etc. If you look at another fragment, Here's the fragment from 11Q19. This is the New Jerusalem. And on the New Jerusalem, there are 12 gates. And on the names of the gates are the names of the children of Israel. And it's got three to the east, three to the south, three to the west, three to the north. The same thing in Revelation. The New Jerusalem. This, the, 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 the interesting part of this is... You've got symbolism like that that would have meant a lot to those people. And we need to read it with an understanding that we can get from those people as we try to understand what the message is to the church 
in John's day into the church today. And it makes it a wonderful thing to study. But we've got to be real careful because if we approach the book without first putting it into its context, we're going to to run the risk of misunderstanding these things because we'll interpret them based upon our context when we need to first understand them in the context in which they were written and then interpret them for us today. Make sense? Okay, so this is an exciting opportunity. And there are wonderful people who've done wonderful works on this. Um, And and this is not an in-depth study in Revelation, but we're going to look at it and we're going to try to understand it. So in the process of that, there are four basic views of how to interpret Revelation. Four general schools of thought. The first school of thought is called the preterist view. Now, these names, you may be thinking, why do I need to know these names? You don't. I'm just throwing them up there. Because some of you may want to. They're labels so that scholars can toss around. Well, that's a preterist view. Well, yes, but it's pseudo-preterist because blah, 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 blah. Okay? So they're useful. But you don't have to learn them. They're not, there's no test on this next week. Don't come back. Oh, I'm scared to go this Sunday. I forgot oh, that preterist view. No, that's not going to happen. Preterist view means the events that are described by these symbols and by this book happened back in John's day, not today. So 666, the mark of the beast, Nero, generally, under the preterist view. These are events that happened back then, not today. A second view is a historist view. The historist view is kind of a partial preterist view. It says these events happened back then, but they're coming all the way up through to now and to the end of days. And so you can see it back then, but you can chart through and read through it and You know, these are the people who say, well, I think today we're at Revelation chapter 17. No, we're at 15. You know, da-da-da-da-da. You can have that debate. A third view is an idealist view. The idealist view just says this is all allegory. Don't read it for something it's not. It's allegory. And then there is a fourth view, which is a futurist view which says after you get past the seven letters to the seven churches generally, the book's all about the end times. And so we understand it as the end times. Now, let me give you an idea of of how this would bear itself out. Take, for example, the New Jerusalem. In the preterist view, the New Jerusalem, by and large, is considered the church by many scholars. So it's the presence of the church, is the new Jerusalem that's come down from above, and it's built with seven gates, which are the the sons of Israel, because you entered in through the church, through Israel, through Judaism originally. That was where the church opened up. But the foundations for the walls are the teachings of the twelve apostles. So that's a preterist view. A historist view would be, no, 
the new Jerusalem will be the kingdom of God that will come down at some point in time. It's at the end of the book because it's, you've got all of the history that works up to that. The idealist view would be that the, the, the new Jerusalem is an allegory by which we understand, for example, the church or the kingdom of God. And so it's where God dwells. It, it is because uh, there's no temple in the New Jerusalem, according to Revelation 21. By the way, a distinction between the writings of the New Jerusalem and the Dead Sea Scrolls. They always talk about the temple and how the temple is going to be built in the New Jerusalem. And in Revelation, as some of the special understanding, is it's specified when the New Jerusalem comes, there's no temple there. Because God himself is dwelling there. It's pretty profound and pretty cool how it takes that, that, that image that the people would have understood and turns it upside down to help them understand it in a glorified Christ manner. So, um, um, and then the, the futurist is, is yes, there'll be a, a new Jerusalem coming down. Now, I will share with you my view, God willing, as we get a little bit further along and, and it, it, I think you may find it interesting and intriguing. I hope it makes some sense to you. Uh, many of you have heard it from me before. But in the process of sharing that, if you take something like the measurements of the city, regardless of what the city, how you take the New Jerusalem, the measurements themselves were very symbolic. Measurements mean... Um, how many builders we got? Larry, where's Larry Shillette? Larry's a builder. Uh, he's not here. Okay. Ah, there's a builder right here. We got a builder. He just didn't want to hold his hand up. Um, we got builders in here. Uh, you don't build without taking measurements if you're going to be a careful builder. Measurements are symbolic of care, nurturing, forethought, and 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 deliberation. And, and so the measurements of the city are given as a way of explaining that this is a city that's from God. It's not an afterthought. It's not a hodgepodge. It's something that's been very carefully planned and articulated. So regardless of where you land on that, it's a nice provision of how God takes care of us. So we've got the views of interpretation. Then I've got a really good one that was shared with me by... Dentist Lewis right there, Mojo. He showed it to me on his iPhone. I, I made him show it to me again. It's from a, a, a buddy of his. And it's pretty good. I've taken my favorite three points from it. He says, here's the view of interpretation. God's team wins. You get to pick a team. Don't be stupid. I really like that. That's pretty good. God's team wins. You get to pick... I don't care what view of interpretation you have, you can't miss that message from Revelation. So we're going to have some fun. We're going to look at it. But today, let's look at our points for home. And then uh, next week, I, I hope you'll come back as we unfold some more of the book and, and look at it in some detail. In the meantime, this week, I'm going to work hard to remember this. I hope you will as well. The revelation, singular, of Jesus Christ. That means both it's a revealing of who Jesus is, but more so a revelation that Jesus gave. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, 
to show his servants, so Jesus could show his servants, the things that must soon take place. I like that. That's God's provision. God has something for us in this book, in this revelation. And I think we'll really benefit by looking at it in some more detail. Next, I'm going to carry this blessing home. And I hope you will too. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. For the time is near. We have a chance to receive the blessings of Almighty God. He specifically said, if you'll listen to this, if you'll read this and hear it, you will be blessed. I want us to enjoy that blessing together. And so that's one of the things we're going to be working toward. And then the final point for home, I love Revelation 1, 5, and 6 because this is the experience of my life. To him who loves us, who's freed us from our sins by his blood, and who's made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. We'll talk some about the symbolism of numbers, but three was a very holy number. And so three is often used with God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You have these threes. Here's a three in this verse. He loves us, he freed us, and he made us. Three verbs that he did for us. And that's my blessing on you if you join me in a final blessing. Lord, we come before you. We come before you as the Lord who loves us, who freed us, and has made us a kingdom. Who's made us priests. We bow before you in reverence. And we eagerly and expectantly wait for the joy of the blessings of working through and uncovering this revelation that you've given us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who reigns eternally, we pray. Amen.